0: to week six of the Evergreen Book Club as we start to near the end now of a book that we've been reading called The Importance of Being Foolish by Brendan Manning. Uh, this week I have with me again Laura Mail. What's up, Laura?
1: Um, good afternoon. I was going to say morning, but it's not morning anymore.
0: It's not morning anymore. That is correct. Um, Kyle Rosskamp is also hanging out with us. What's up, Kyle? Hi, (laughs) thought I was going to have to remind you that now that we're recording over Zoom or even that we are doing an audio recording, uh, nonverbal communication doesn't really help. Uh, So thank you for that adorable smile, that sweet hello. My name is Adam Locker. I get to hang out with you guys again. We are going to jump right in. Um, If you are following along from home, we are going to talk about uh, pages... 117 through 147, uh, which is chapter six. It's in part two. Uh, Part two is called The Mind of Christ. Chapter six uh, overall is called The Work of the Kingdom. Uh, I really, although this was a long part of the reading, I really enjoyed having it being broken up into some subsections. It made consuming it a little bit easier. Um, There are a couple of spots that really stuck out to me, but before we get there, Give me a general summary of your experience. Uh, maybe what you thought about the this chapter six, um, how it made you feel, maybe anything that stuck out. Uh, Kyle, why don't you kick us off with a little bit of a summary?
2: Um, the, t- the title of the chapter is The Work of the Kingdom, which, I mean, of course, describes it pretty well, I would hope. Um, <laughs> the, it's really helpful to hear someone talk about our responsibilities as members of the family of God, of how sometimes we get so caught up in ourselves and our relationship with the Lord and our walk with him and our faith journey, so to speak, even though I hate that phrase, um, that we forget that our job is exclusively to do the work of the kingdom, which is all of us together, right? Which is us lifting each other up, which is us doing the Lord's redemptive work in us and in others and together and in our societies. And to hear him describe like spaces in which he has done that and spaces in which he's seen that be done and places in the Bible which Jesus calls us to uh not live for ourselves, but to live amongst others and to disregard our own desires and cares, uh in order to serve the larger group better. Uh, It's just really cool to hear and really inspires me to do a little bit better in a lot of
0: ways. Right on. Laura, how about you?
1: I am yet again struggling with this chapter. The last chapter I liked. This one I've kind of dumped back down. Um, I'm struggling with, it just seems like he keeps telling us, don't do this and don't do this and do this. You should only be doing one thing, and that is, to live the lifestyle of a monk and only spend time thinking about God. And I just, I'm struggling with that. I'm just trying to figure out if we're supposed to be quitting everything to solely focus on God, what, I just need some practical steps as to how that's going to happen. So I'm just, I don't know. I'm struggling with kind of what that is supposed to look like. And I just want him to lay it out a little better.
2: Laura, I'm interested to hear like what specifically you're talking about. I mean, I'm not like refuting you, but I would love to. Because I think we experience some of those things differently, and I like to talk about that.
1: We do. Um, oh, let's see. I I wrote my note on page the bottom of page one twenty eight, and so it was kind of after just reading through, probably starting at the divided self. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of like where. I wrote it next to the the second to last paragraph and it says we periodically close ourselves off from God. Our hearts are touched by the icy finger of agnosticism. Christian agnosticism does not not consist so much in the denial of a personal God as in the unbelief of inattention to the sacred. The way we live bears unmistakable witness to our loving awareness or lack of it. And I guess maybe it just was kind of a compiling of what has come before that um, that I just kind of wrote. So how do we live this without quitting everything to solely focus on God? Um, I just wanted to know, like, it feels like our job is to think like him in every situation. And it's just, that isn't, that's an ideal for sure, but that isn't reality. And so what are practical steps that I can be doing to moving myself towards that recognizing I'm never going to attain that because I'm not, I'm not Jesus.
0: Laura, I love how I love how um, practical you are in your reading. Uh, I'm realizing how emotional I am in my reading uh, because I am nearly the opposite. I, I actually thought of you, uh, I have to admit, while I was reading that section, The divided Itself, I thought it, it's funny because I read that and thought, oh, Finally, here are all of the answers uh, to the questions that Laura has been posting uh, over the last few weeks, and um, and it's helpful to hear you say that it didn't give you that type of clarity. Um, for me, the divided self could be my favorite part of the whole book. Um, I and probably I have to admit that the reason that it is probably my favorite part is because it was probably the part that best described me, and the specific things that i wrestle with in the christian realm right uh, the the things that i struggle with the things that i hesitate to grasp a hold of um in the christian context and christian belief and in what i've seen as um uh maybe even christian leadership and so the divided self um was both a slap in the face um, but also a glimmer of hope. Um, I think it was in it was in the middle paragraph of page 127 uh, that I specifically wrote uh, that I thought it was the best part of the book. Now, then, in page 129, I think I underlined the entire page of 129. Um, but the thing that um, I really connected with in the quote on 127 was the beginning of paragraph two, the crisis of American spirituality, put bluntly, is spirit versus flesh. The failure or flat refusal to abide in the mind of Christ creates duality and separation within us. Uh, we do not choose decisively between God and mammon, uh, and our procrastination um, constitutes a decision itself. Like, oh, yes, that that is that is like my life's Christian experience wrestling. It, it named it for me for the first time, maybe in my life, realizing that maybe this inner turmoil that I experience in my faith um, comes from a divisive duality that I'm simply procrastinating um, a decision to make on. And uh, I loved how it ends that um, that thought by saying. Our procrastination um, constitutes a decision in itself. And I think that's probably the fundamental lie um, that I have told myself for maybe the entirety of my Christian spiritual experience, life, existence, commitment. And uh, I think that's why it really connected with me.
2: Yeah, I think... Go ahead,
1: Kyle.
2: The thing that I, I... like. I really connected in the same way Adam did, but I think the reason that I connected connect with this sort of like um, this sort of dive into the brain behind the things that we do is because I think I'm almost to probably to a fault. I'll say almost to a fault to like hedge my bets, but probably to a fault like overly non-moralistic, where like I genuinely like. <laughs> sometimes just like disregard what people do and like try to find the things behind them or like why. And I, you know, and I just, I hate the notion that Christianity becomes a checklist and like, I like really, really struggle with like Christianity as like routines, rhythms, and just doing, checking off boxes. Um, And when Brennan Manning describes like these things that we are doing poorly, he describes like ways in which we fail ourselves right? Not ways in which like we don't do the right things, but ways in which we are keeping ourselves down because of the way we're thinking about stuff. And in a world in which like, we always look to the things we're doing, the checks we're checking off to-do lists or not. Like, I think often we forget to look inwards and finding like the wounds that we have created in ourselves that like make stuff hard. And So that's why these, like, uh, the things that feel kind of condemning sometimes to me, even in here, are like freeing to be like, okay, at least we're thinking the same way.
0: Man, I think that that is a really helpful thing for me to hear. And I think a really important clarity is that um, the section of the book, while deeply powerful, is not in acknowledgement of how we have failed God, it's largely an acknowledgement of how we failed ourselves. And, and that there's so much more to life than we are trying to give credit to. It's, there's so much more to our uh, belief in a savior than we give ourselves credit for. And, and I think that's, that's it was easy for me to read through particularly this divided self section and think, wow, I have really failed God. Uh, in my commitment to him. Um, and and so that clarity is really helpful for me.
2: And I think the the thing that I have, like, taken from most of this book is that I need to think less about how I'm failing God. And I think the road to begin to, like, feel that less is to understand the ways in which I fail myself.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And I wonder if, from my perspective, because, like... <laughs> the word that stuck out to me when you read that piece uh, was the word procrastination. And we all know I am not a procrastinator. (laughs)
0: Mm.
1: (laughs) I come early to everything.
0: (laughs) That's true. Yes, you do. (laughs) And
1: so, and I'm also, um, I'm also an experiential person. So I'm not a deep thinker like the both of you. And I think for me, I need to have steps in place to get me down that road of thinking and in that process. And so I think maybe that might be some of the struggle I'm having here is I'm looking for ways to do what he's telling me to do. And I can't think them out for myself. I need, mm. I need to know, like on the, you said that you underlined everything on page 129. And here's what I put in my notes. So basically we try to put things in place to draw us closer. And he's saying they don't work. So then what does? <laughs> i just like, okay, so you're telling me all these things. And now that doesn't work. So then what does, I want to know what works. And I just want to cut to the chase and I want to get to it. and I want to do it.
0: Oh man, I love it. I I love that so much. I I think that one of the things we find a lot, and and I know I'm going to speak for all of us because we've talked about this, is we run into a lot of people in our opportunities for spiritual leadership. We run into a lot of people who come to us and say, I've been doing all these things and I still feel like I don't know who God is. I've been doing all these things. I still feel far away from God. Um, I have been trying to." Participate in spiritual activities, yet I feel so far from a savior. Um, And and right at the top of one twenty nine, he writes, uh, "But so many things uh, of, but so many of the things we do in the solitary moments have nothing to do with the spirit or with the living will of God." Bothered by this dichotomy, we plunge into spiritual activities and get involved in church-related organizations and events in an effort to fill the empty space we know. Needs filling. Huh? Like that's so good. That's that. It's so helpful to put words that I've never been able to give back to someone in that type of clarity. That says those things inherently aren't bad. And I think that that's what you're struggling with, Laura. Is you're 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 taking it in a way that's saying that it's inherently bad. I don't think it's inherently bad. I think that the point is that when we are using those things, uh, spiritual activities, church related, uh, organizations and events. When we're attempting to do those things simply to fill empty space, we know needs filling. That's where it becomes fundamentally, uh, bad or, or even unsustainable.
2: Yeah. He even talks about the T.S. Eliot thing on the first page where he's like, Oh, my soul will be prepared to meet him. Who knows how to ask questions. Like, what is church? What is worship? What is like this? that we're doing, if not to figure out how to formulate questions. And when we convince people that going to church means like filling out the answer portion of a test Hmm. and not formulating questions, that's when people get confused and left out and like, don't want to enter into a space because they, people who don't believe almost understand better than Christians do that life is filled with unanswerables. (laughs) And when we claim God to be answerable, when we claim like, faith to be answerable when we claim, like, sure, I have a few theological qualms with what I'm saying right now, but, like, when we claim for this all to be clear, we fail to understand, like, the holiness and the mystery and the questions that Jesus asked.
0: It's like the classic Sunday school response to any question being, uh, Jesus, and and I feel like we've grown up in Sunday school, um, that has set us up to simply give that answer of to any question that's uh, put out there to be a question mark jesus <laughs> a I think the answer is jesus um, we have we've become so okay then in our adulthood with responding to any question or problem or concern with um, jesus maybe maybe the thing that we should start teaching people to answer our Sunday School questions with are, I don't know, (laughs) Uh, I I want to know more, Um, how can we learn more together? Uh, Instead of, as you're suggesting Kyle, which I think is really insightful, just simply trying to come up with more of the Jesus answer.
1: I think that's part of where doubting is a huge piece to our faith, right? Because it makes us ask those tough questions and it makes us search for those answers in the best way possible
0: and why it's hurtful when you hear spiritual leaders say scold people for doubting yeah (laughs) you know i mean we've been at events together where we've heard leaders say you you should be upset with yourself for doubting the truths Um, that are written in the Bible or for questioning the truths that are written in the Bible, or even, or or to put that further, to be wrestling with, to, to struggle, to understand, to be struggling with it's, it's too bad that that is um, too common. The Christian experience for so many people.
2: Yeah. Buechner said doubt is ants in the pants of faith. They keep it alive and moving.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I like that. Um, that is a horrible image.
0: <laughs> One of the things that I found interesting was on page 125. Um, he writes, We often forget that we have the same access to God that Jesus enjoyed, but we must never forget that our Creator cares. And I'll be honest, when I first started reading the beginning of this chapter on page 118, um there are these scripture references uh the three references my food said Jesus is to do the will of him who sent me to do uh, to finish his work and then it goes on to a John 14 passage and a Luke 22 passage i read through those and my skeptical self and being immediately said like of course that's what Jesus would say right of course that was how Jesus existed and I found a ton of relief when I finally got to page 125, where, um, where it, it just kind of hit me again with, uh, we often forget that we have the same access to God that Jesus enjoyed. And it made me immediately go back to page 118 and read those scripture verses in a whole different perspective of thinking, this is not just Jesus who gets this type of connection or this type of life fuel what a weird thing to say, but I still believe it. Um, uh, It is, we have that same access. And uh, I started to realize personally how, how much I'm limiting um, the way I experience God, because I fundamentally forget that I enjoy that same access. Did that part connect with either of you uh, when you read it as well?
1: I actually underlined the same exact line in there about the just understanding that we have the same access to God that Jesus did, and we just don't take advantage of it. And he modeled it so often where he took such great advantage of it. It's all over in the Bible, in the New Testament, and um, with examples of how we can do that. Um, So maybe I'm debunking my own theory about this book, and (laughs) I just need to read the Bible and follow what Jesus is doing anyway, um, because he does. He models he models that really well for us into how to have that communion with God on a very personal level.
0: Yeah, and then he continues throughout the chapter by building a chapter off of like, hey, look, you have this same access to God. Um, talks about the divided self. Moves into. Uh, the Kingdom and the World, where he reminds us uh, that to think like Jesus is to experience being loved so completely by God that we are existentially incapable of being other than the children of the Father uh, in Jesus Christ or in Christ Jesus. Um, and then moves us into a section about justice, which I felt um, was pretty powerful. Uh, he, he, he really set up why justice is important. And uh, I just I guess I'm wondering um, what take uh, you guys had on that justice section as chapter six wraps up.
2: He sets it up really well in the beginning of the chapter with telling the story of Jesus at the temple. When people are asking him where his mother and uh, sister are, he says, are you all not my brother or my brothers and my sisters and my mother? And sets this like standard that the kingdom of God trumps all familial relationships, all friendships, all whatever. Like this is what is important. And Brennan says in here, like we cannot claim to have the mind of Christ and remain insensitive to the oppression of our brothers and sisters. Like when we open up our personal like care from ourselves and then our families and eliminate those rings of like desire to just include the kingdom of God, which includes all the people he created, uh, we start to like think of life differently, right? And he, um, Brennan quotes uh, Enrique Dussel here and talks about when Cain killed Abel. And he says, the person who does not commit himself to the liberation of the slaves in Egypt is an atheist. He is Cain killing Abel. Once Abel was dead, Cain was alone. He now believed himself to be the only one. And he describes how like ignoring our Um, our opportunities, our callings, our responsibility to lift up the oppressed and to um, provide justice where justice has been absent in the world. When we ignore that, we claim to be um, capable of being alone. We claim to be um, capable of existing without each other. And then Brendan Manning goes on to describe how That is the initial sin of Adam, right? To say, I wanna be divine like God. I wanna eat this apple so I will be able to be alone. And how messed up it is that in our desire to honor God by being singular and by being like independent, we commit the singular sin that brought us to this point in the first place.
0: That was such a powerful revelation uh, for me in in this section as well. Um, and I, uh, those those points that hit you hit me largely in the same way, um, particularly because I find it easier to be sensitive to the imp- oppression of our quote unquote brothers and sisters that are far away, that that largely don't impact my ability um, to to be my own person, to do what I want, to live independently. Um, so I, I realized in reading this that I, that it's easier to care for the poor in Western Europe um, than for me it is to be actively caring for and not just thinking for the poor in Hudsonville and zealand and west michigan and it's easy to say oh yeah i'm a christian i care about those people over there and that 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 kind of i don't know eye-opening piece that says oh man i'm missing the care and justice that i can provide to my brothers and sisters who live uh next to me who live with me who live around me and uh that that was really challenging to me as i read
1: this I agree. It's kind of like what we were talking about, even just in worship planning this week is that we get so caught up in taking care of ourselves and, and do, you know, I think of Nehemiah and Nehemiah is pleading and and sobbing for the sins of Jerusalem and trying to get them to come back to God and get things right and in order and, and reset. And, and there's a nice plug for Sunday morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I just, I wonder how much my heart burns for that. Like how do I teach myself to really truly love and chase after the things that God loves and what God hates chase after and eradicate the things he hates. And I don't know how, how to change that in myself. And I, it's, for me, I guess it's more of an understanding of who and how God works and continuing to, to chasing after that first so that I then have a, a, uh, an actual change of heart and action because i think it's you know this chapter in particular is talking about the action that we aren't taking we can think about it all day long um but it doesn't mean anything unless we're doing something about it
2: i think the 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 thing that like hit me the most and the thing that like shamed me the most in this in a healthy way was the bottom of page 146 when he asked the question who are the oppressors and who are the oppressed um and i don't necessarily think you need to be one or the other but i kind of think that you do um i don't think either of you have watched the good place the tv show um i have the first maybe season maybe the second okay but they like a theme in that show is how it's like about the afterlife and about how what what being a good person is. It's not like theologically sound, but like it asks some interesting questions. And one of the things that that show asks is that has the world evolved to a point where it's impossible to be good, right? Like, can you eat French fries without, like, can you just a simple act like that, like be oppressive to people, right? Like there's workers somewhere that are harvesting those may be oppressed. The workers that are creating them may be oppressed. The methodology for farming the potatoes might be like detrimental to, the world or is just doing bad generally morally poor and like it's so hard now to not be an oppressor right like I was I even think about Amazon and just like their like practices like their employment practices and like hearing stories of that and just like I can't like buy an umbrella on the internet without oppressing systemically someone or something and that's such a hard thing for me of realizing the
0: spaces in which I am an oppressor. You know what I mean? I do. I I think through, we, we've gone through that a bit with the realities of oppression that, um, happen to simply produce a phone, (laughs) you know, and I use my phone all the time. Um, and, and I think that, I think that that really continues to push us to the, self-isolating person or the person who is attempting to affirm their own divinity doesn't even care. They're not even asking those questions. They're not even encouraging other people to ask those questions. And what inspires me about this piece is number one, how do I and how do we continue to ask these questions? How do we, how do we continue to move people um, into a life, with Christ that recognizes that the oppression that Jesus spoke against and the power that was in him to speak against that oppression, we have access to that exact same power, which is a really uh, incredible reality for us. Um, and then secondly, it really affirms um, to me, our church's Evergreen's mission, first priority um, to care for our local community. To, to share a love of Christ to our local community, not just the church people, uh, the, the entire community. And um, this part of the book really uh, affirms that, that goal, direction, vision to me, but it also really inspires me to, to do a better job uh, at that.
2: Yeah, last paragraph really got me to like thinking about how to become a liberator as opposed to an oppressor. And it says, all the the burial mounds of rhetoric and enfeebled good intentions, all the mumbling and their fumbling of cerebral Christians busy cultivating their own idolatries are not worth as much as one loving act that emancipates one slave from one moment of exile in Egypt. It's like, man, I could think for three weeks about how sad I am about stuff, you know, and how much communities, how much people, how much populations suffer unjustly. But until I do one loving act that emancipates one slave from one moment of exile, then I have done nothing, (laughs) you know? And like, so that's where my, like, that's where that brings me is like, I love to talk about it, right? I love to talk about my desire for justice, my desire for the world to like be equal. But when it's really time to put my money where my mouth is both literally and figuratively, I gotta start to do that.
1: Yeah, it really comes down to action. Um, We can give it some verbal love, but that's not gonna do anything unless we're actually going out and solving the problems and meeting the needs of the people in our own neighborhoods. Um, Awesome. And that means means having eyes to see that
0: as well. Well, man, this sounds like a great spot to wrap it up. Um, I'm jacked up to go do something awesome this week. And uh, in, and, and really to, to try to start making those changes, to be more aware of ways that we can uh, impact and change our, our community and uh, through our community, our world. And so uh, thank you both for being open, for being honest, to sharing some thoughts and perspectives, and even for reading the book. Uh, we've made it six weeks. Uh, through this thing. We have one more chapter left. Um, So thank you to you both. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Kyle, uh, for joining me. Thank you to everyone who's listening, who's made their way through this book with us. Uh, I'm glad we can have an opportunity to do things together, uh, even in a space of some significant social distancing. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks for listening.